You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Loving Father in heaven, we praise your holy name and thank you for your message from 1 John for this last hour church. Father in heaven, we recognize that we need Jesus to safely bring us through these trying times in this final hour before Jesus returns in glory. And I pray that you will hide me behind the cross of Jesus and Dr. Holmes as well, as Lord, he has given me the opportunity as his associate in ministry, as fellow pastor in the UP of Michigan to take the mantle, so to speak, today, given that his voice is not what he would like it to be to share, but encourage and strengthen him and each one that's here, Lord, and those that will hear this message at a later time, that your Holy Spirit be the one to guide us now. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So a short explanation is that Dr. Holmes and I have been serving in pastoral ministry in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan for about seven years, and his voice is not what he would need it to be to give this important last hour message. And so I was praying about it and I offered that I would be willing to give the seminar in his behalf. So he is right here with us, and I have his Bible, and I have his notes, but we have the Holy Spirit ultimately to guide us. And so I appreciate that you're here with us, and I consider it a privilege to have served with uh, this pillar of the faith for as many years as I have, and let's just continue to pray that God's message go out with power, and we know it will. So as we've prayed and asked for the Holy Spirit to guide us, uh, I just want to, uh, before I delve into the message, just share a testimony of thankfulness that I've had the opportunity to minister with Dr. Holmes for the years that I have. I had specifically prayed when I was completing my studies at Andrews University for a call in northern Michigan, and that's exactly where God sent me. And so we've had a very close ministry relationship. I would say more like a father-son, Paul-Timothy type of a ministry friendship and relationship, and that's been a gift from God. So just know that my heart is knit with this message as well, as 1 John is also my favorite book of the Bible. That was well before I even knew him. So God's providences are always evident in his, his working. So as we delve into the Word of God today in 1 John, it's notable that the Apostle John has made us aware of two major theological issues faced by the last hour church, two issues that impinge on its understanding of both its message and mission in that hour. For one, we have the rejection of the biblical concept of human sin. And if you turn to 1 John 1.8, we see this, where John the apostle writes, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then secondly, we have the rejection of the biblical concept of victory over the power of sin to dominate and control human life. We see this in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, we see that both of these are major deceptions. The first deceives the world, which then is led to think 
that it needs no savior. An atheist would accept the idea of God if he were not a moral God. If God had not established standards of righteousness by his law, and if he did not hold mankind accountable. It is not the idea of God that is disliked, but the idea of sin. Bertrand Russell, an atheist philosopher, says, and I quote from his book, Why I Am Not a Christian, on page 50, the Christian God may exist. But he also goes on to state on page 205 of the same book, kindness is inhibited by the belief in sin. And so now we look at the second major deception that John is addressing. And the second deceives the church, which then is led to be content with, and if you'll turn to 2 Timothy 3 verse 5, so 2 Timothy 3 verse 5, if you have your Bibles, we'll turn there. We don't want to be deceived by this error that will hit the church. First Timothy, excuse me, Second Timothy three verse five. Second Timothy three five warns us, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. So this appearance of godliness, while denying its power, is going to be the deception the devil will use on the church in the last hour. So, to his preface, he adds a but, and this is in, back in 1 John 2, verse 1, if you turn back to our key text, 1 John 2, verse 1. John the Beloved writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. In other words, don't say you have no sin. Admit it. Confess it. Receive the forgiveness and cleansing of a faithful and just God. So repentance is what leads to relationship restoration, both with God and with those that we've wronged that we make things right with. Then we can live in the atmosphere of righteousness because... As John says in 1 John 3.10, if you turn there, 1 John 3 and verse 10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So the key thought brought out here is whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Christian believers ought to know on the authority of the word of God that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God, that is Jesus, protects him and the evil one does not touch him. That's in 1 John 5 and verse 18. But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, as we saw in 1 John 2 and verse 1 who will then represent you in his presence. John does not hold to the mistaken idea of sinless perfection. He understands the fallenness of mankind. He says this not to condone sin or to diminish its offense to God as a moral evil, but to uplift 
and glorify the only one who can save from the consequences of any sin one may fall into. Because he, Jesus alone, is, and we turn now to 1 John 2, verse 2. 1 John 2 and verse 2. The key word that we're looking for in 1 John 2, 2 is, he is the propitiation, and the Greek brings out to be merciful in that word. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Praise the Lord. He is our reconciler. He reconciles us to God because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's in Romans 5, verse 8. So these are basic teachings, truths, and doctrines of the New Testament. They must not be lost sight of, diminished, or perverted. What follows is also a basic teaching of the New Testament which must not be lost sight of, diminished, or perverted by the church of the last hour. That which distinguishes and identifies that church is faith in Jesus Christ as the advocate, as the propitiation for our sins, and keeping the commandments of God. John repeats that twice, he repeats that twice in the book of Revelation. This is how we know that we know him, and this is taken from 1 John 2, 4 and 5, if you follow in your Bibles. Whoever, say, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may be sure that we are in him. So this is what we would see biblically as true love. The idea that knowledge of God's love is the supreme value and that how one lives is of no importance when it comes to authenticating one's relationship with God is a deception that has no place in the theology or the lifestyle of the last hour church. The Word of God makes it absolutely clear that only a life lived in harmony with the will, Word of God, excuse me, the will and Word of God is reliable evidence of a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Any theology that does not hold to this New Testament truth is a lie. Any lifestyle that does not bear witness to this New Testament truth is false and hypocritical. Then, in order to indelibly imprint it on the reader's mind, the apostle says it again in another way. We turn to 1 John 2, 5 and 6 now, continuing 1 John 2, 5 and 6. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. And now in verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So we see that to abide in Christ means to be united with him. Listen to Jesus' own words quoted by John in the Gospel of John, chapter 15. If you turn there. John 15, we'll be starting in verse 4. John 15, starting in verse 4. John is quoting the words of Jesus here. John 15, beginning in verse 4. And I begin with John 15, 4. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, 
Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. We note that John affirms what Jesus says back in 1 John 3 and verse 24, if we turn there now. 1 John 3, 24. 1 John 3, 24 states these words as John the Apostle writes, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. So what spirit is this? It's the spirit of obedience. That's the way that Christ walked. So the essential point is abiding in God, abiding in Christ, begins by faith in his justifying grace and is demonstrated by obedience to his divine law. How crucial that it is for the theology and the message and the mission of the church of the last hour. Faith in the righteousness of Christ separated from the practice of righteousness by the believer is not the message of the New Testament. Can we all say amen to that? You can't separate the two. So how important is all of this? Well, let's turn over to 1 John 2, 28 through 29. 1 John 2, 28 and 29. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. It's no wonder that Luther wrote, if we cast the law, that is the commandments, aside, we shall no longer retain Christ in Antinomian Disputation. That's the book that Luther wrote in Thesis 40 and 41. And now a quote from the Spirit of Prophecy in Testimonies, Volume 1, page 286. And I quote, Living in the last days, how important that we imitate the example of Christ and walk even as he walked. The opinions and wisdom of men must not guide or govern us. They always lead away from the cross. Can you say amen? amen? It's exactly what happens. And so we should, as a church, in this last hour before Jesus returns, miss no opportunity to study the Word of God. We need our personal time of Bible study, our personal time each day in the Word of God. We need that consistent time at Sabbath school and our involvement in our church worship services and the prayer meeting, 
where the Word of God is to guide and direct our lives. We need to be serious in these last days. Amen? Amen. Now is a time for serious reflection on how close we are to the coming of Jesus. And so a question to ask all of us in reflection, has the COVID-19 pandemic had a negative effect on the life of the church? And as we reflect on how it's impacted the Word of God's spread in our experience, maybe in some ways it's spread more online, but has it strengthened our personal spiritual lives and our walk with God? So let's reflect on that as we continue our message in 1 John. John, the writer of this letter, it's only five chapters that we're studying, is a fascinating person. He's a stirring example of one whose personality and character has been transformed by a close relationship with Jesus. Amen? Isn't it amazing how God changed uh, John, who was fiery in his disposition, to meek and teachable? The Gospel of Mark tells us that when Jesus appointed the twelve apostles, he called Simon Peter, which means rock, and he called the brothers James and John sons of thunder. And that's in Mark 3.17. Let's turn over there. Mark 3.17, how Jesus called these first disciples. Mark 3.17. And this is within the list of the twelve apostles. Mark 3.17, James the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. So apparently they lived up to their nickname. John was zealous and ambitious. He was at times reckless, impetuous, and even intolerant, volatile and argumentative. But as he matured, as John matured in the faith of Jesus, he mellowed and became tender-hearted. Exactly what should happen to each one of us as we grow in Christ. John became the kind of man we would love to have as a friend. He fit Paul's description of a mature believer as one who, and we see this in Ephesians 4, 15, let's turn there. How does Paul describe a mature believer? Ephesians 4, verse 15, as we apply it to the life of John the Beloved. Ephesians 4, 15. And the Bible says, Ephesians 4, verse 15, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So John was now speaking the truth in love. This son of thunder became known as the apostle of love. Why then, we ask, the student of the Bible would reflect, doesn't the apostle of love in this First John letter begin by talking about love. It's not from the surface, apparently the first thing. Well, actually he does, though we may not think so at first, because John knew that to love Christ is to love his word, and to love his word is to love Christ. The two cannot be separated from each other. In his gospel, John quotes Jesus, and so we turn now to John chapter 14, Verses 23 and 24, John 14, 23 and 24. 
nice to hear those pages turning in your Bibles. John 14, 23 and 24. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So John begins his letter by talking about walking in the light of truth and not walking in the darkness. He writes about confessing sins, about forgiveness, about being cleansed from all unrighteousness. He writes about self-deception, about keeping the commandments as evidence of knowing the Father and the Son. He writes about walking in the same way Jesus walked. So when John wrote in 1 John 2, 3 through 6, let's turn there. 1 John 2. Verses 3 through 6, these words. And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So as John wrote these words, he must have remembered the event of many years before when an angel had come and let him and Peter and the other apostles out of prison. They were put there by the high priest and the Sanhedrin because they had been preaching the gospel and winning multitudes to a saving faith in Jesus as Messiah. He must have remembered the brave words of Peter and the apostles to those religious and political leaders that we find in Acts 5, 29. Let's turn there. Acts 5, verse 29. Acts chapter 5 and verse 29. Give you a few moments there. Acts 5, 29. But Peter... And the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. I have to say amen to that. He was there. John was there. He was one of them. He heard it and he saw it. How could he forget it? And they were severely beaten and they were charged. And just a few verses later, let's look at verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. And charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they were let go. So what did they do? First, we find in Acts 5 and verse 42. Excuse me. No. Just give me a moment here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Actually, verse 41. Yes, 541. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So they're, they're praising God that they got to suffer for Jesus. And afterwards, rather than being stopped, if we go to Acts 5 and verse 42, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Amen. Sounds like the persecution only gave them more courage to keep doing God's work. They practiced what they preached 
Obey God, not men. The word of God is the highest authority of all. It's not high priests, the Sanhedrin, church councils, popes, ecclesiastical pronouncements, sociological studies, culture, traditions, or articulate scholars that have the last word. It's the word of God. Such events, such indelible memories, must have had a profound effect on the way John thought about the faith as his theology is developing, leading to the writing of his letter. And then how he lived his life as a follower of Christ exhibited in his godly lifestyle. John does not equivocate. His thinking is clear, not fuzzy. He is not ruled by sentiment, but by truth. He doesn't vacillate. Thinkers of our day don't like absolutes, but John does. He does not hesitate to make clear distinctions between light and darkness, faith and faithlessness, sin and righteousness, the true and the false. His logic is relentless, and he draws an unmistakable line. That's why not only Pastor Holmes, but I also like 1 John. His gospel has always been my favorite, and I just have to, I just have to smile. That's actually true for me as well. That's my favorite book in the Bible. It's been that way for years, and um, I just praise the Lord. It's so clear and it's so direct. Drawing such lines is certainly not popular today. Today, it is fashionable to ignore them, to bend them, and ultimately to erase them. Brave people like John are rarely appreciated by those who are less brave in character. If the church of the last hour is incapable, as John says, of distinguishing between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, let's turn to 1 John 4, 6 to see what he's driving at. 1 John 4, verse 6. We must have discernment, spiritual discernment, to understand these important truths. 1 John 4, verse 6. The Bible says, We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And we certainly need that discernment now. So if we're not having that discernment between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, that church of which we are to be a part will not be prepared to meet the demands required in fulfilling its mission in the last hour. So as we continue in the message of 1 John, as the Holy Spirit, by means of this Word of God, prepares His church to meet these demands, we are to remember and be forewarned as John gave his message. So go to 1 John 2, starting in verse 7. 1 John 2, continuing verse 7. And we'll read up through verse 11. Then we'll jump down to 15 through 17. 1 John 2, starting in verse 7. So remembering this, we need to be forewarned. Starting in verse 7, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother 
is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. We go to verse 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now he begins to talk specifically about love and introduces this section with the salutation, beloved. A term of endearment. It means adored, cherished, treasured. It takes a guy like John to use words like this. We don't expect it. After all, he's a man and men don't tend to talk like that. It might even make some of us men a bit uneasy, especially if we find it difficult to express feelings. But John does not hesitate to do so. Why? The fact that he uses the word truth at least 13 times and love at least 37 times ought to help us know why. He makes it undeniably clear that truth must always be presented in the context of love. Love is the motivation for truth. Love, nothing else, is what motivates and prepares the church to meet the mission demands of the last hour. Jodin couldn't help but do something about it. In fact, God had to do something about it. Why? Because it is his nature to do so. He could do no other. John said it like no other New Testament writer in just three words. If we go to 1 John 4 and verse 8. God is love. Amen. And this reminds us of that echo of that well-known scripture in John 3.16. Turn there, John 3.16. Maybe some of us have it memorized. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So it's God who so loved the fallen world that he did something about it in giving his son. His church, the body of Christ, as his messenger of redemption, must so love the fallen world that it does something about it. In this letter, John tells the church of the last hour what that, what, that something was done about it. So overall, it is to stay uncompromisingly true to the word of God. That is what energizes the church to fulfill its mission. If we now turn to 1 John 2, verse 14. 1 John 2 and verse 14. John writes, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So determined to tell the truth about the truth, to walk 
We see in 1 John 1, verse 7, in this way, 1 John 1, 7, But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So we're not to compromise the truth, not to bend it to accommodate culture or abandon it at all. It is only when we walk in the light that we are guaranteed, as 1 John 1.7 says, fellowship with one another, and the assurance that the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. John the Beloved continues in 1 John 2, verse 24, in these words, 1 John 2 and verse 24, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. We also see this in 3 John. If we go to 3 John verse 4, of course, John wrote all through these small epistles as well as the Gospel of John and Revelation. 3 John verse 4, it's only one chapter. 3 John 4, his desire for the disciples to be walking in truth. 3 John 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So that's what brought John joy, to know that they were having that experience. And then in 1 John 2, verse 7, as we turn back to our key text, 1 John 2 and verse 7. 1 John 2, 7. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. So for John, there is no suggestion that what he is saying replaces the word that they had already heard from God. When he uses the term old, he does not mean that it was inadequate, antiquated, unable, impotent, or ineffective. He means that it is long-standing, that it has, has existed for a long time. It's venerable, it's well-advanced and priceless. The transmission of the Word of God, the commandment, is an unbroken chain of divine revelation. Having made his point of connection, he then says in 1 John 2.8, these words, At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So it's not new in the sense that it cancels and supplants the old, but new in the sense of a fresh start on the part of God's people. It's a new beginning. Verse 9 then helps us understand what is new. First John 2, 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. So what is new is the spiritual quality of the old that had been lost in the accumulated religious traditions. Truth is only credible when it is demonstrated by love. In practice, they go hand in hand. So we now look at 1 John 2, verses 9 and 10. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness, 
Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So again, we see in 1 John 3.11, if you turn there now, 1 John 3 verse 11, these words of inspiration, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then in verse 16 of 1 John 3, By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Then he continues in 1 John 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And now again in 1 John 4, 20 and 21, John is making it unmistakably clear, where he writes, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Amen. So to walk in the light To abide in the light is to walk in love. God's truth must be practiced by his people. If their witness is to have any redeeming effect, truth and love must be perfectly blended. It works like this. If you love the Lord, you will love his truth. If you love his truth, you will love the Lord. If you love the Lord and his truth, you will love your brothers as he does and share his truth with them so they can also find salvation. However, if the church is going to be prepared to meet the demands of the last hour mission, it cannot love the world. We turn to 1 John 2 and verse 15. 1 John 2, 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So I'm, I must pause here and share a little uh, personal experience with this verse. Some years ago when I was a new Seventh-day Adventist, or uh, barely learning about the Seventh-day Adventist faith as a student at Pacific Union College, I remember that I was very, very passionate about certain sports teams. So much so that I hated people that didn't like my team. And no one told me to stop wearing my certain cap or watching a certain thing. But the Holy Spirit used this verse in 1 John 2, and it began to realize, if that's another brother who I worship with on Sabbath, that I say we believe the same faith, how can I have these these ill feelings towards them? And without really a murmur or even any, I didn't really even make it a big deal. I just got rid of the sports memorabilia and stopped watching those things. And you couldn't even, if you ask me, I have no clue what those teams are doing today. It just, the Lord just weeded it out of my life. And he did it through the message of 1 John. I found that 1 John in this text really uh, was a call to love God more and to love people regardless of what they were into at the time, but not to let myself be a stumbling block. So I'm so thankful for that and uh, just want to share that. Uh, you know, really this whole concept of not loving the world, let's, let's read it again, 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We might say this sounds contradictory. 
And we've been talking about the church loving the fallen world like God loves it and doing something about it. Now John says not to love the world. But let's understand what he means by this. He draws an unequivocal line. 1 John 2.15, the last part of it, he says, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So world here refers to those things that are hostile to God and that take the church away from him. Then he tells us what he means by the things of the world in verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. So anyone in whom the word of God abides knows what John is talking about without having to go into detail. And we all may struggle in various ways with this, this whole concept of loving the world, but uh, God will heal our hearts and convert them if we submit to his word, the power of the word of God. So anyone in whom the word of God abides uh, is able to have that victory that's promised here to overcome that love of the world and instead have the love of God as paramount. So continuing, to know the revealed will of God for righteous living is to know the difference between good and evil. The church of the last hours being warned about the devastating effect of sensuality and its implications and materialism on its mission, which are not from the Father. And could we agree that we're seeing the devastating effects that that's having on our society right now? People are morally collapsing because they're letting the love of the world, they're letting the lust of flesh basically determine their identity and their whole concept of what is true over the inspired word of God. And we have to make our decision. What's our foundation? We make the scriptures our foundation, we'll stand firm to the end. So how serious is this? Well, it's, it's very serious. And I quote from the Spirit of Prophecy in Testimonies, Volume 1, page 531. Those who think they can serve the world and yet love God are double-minded, losing all sense of their obligation to God and yet professing to be Christ's followers. They are neither one thing nor the other. They will lose both worlds unless they cleanse their hands and purify their hearts through obedience to the pure principles of truth. And that's taken from Testimonies for the Church, Volume 1, page 531. I thought it might be helpful as we have made somewhat of a unique transition in our seminar from Dr. Holmes, having presented on Monday and Tuesday, to uh, him consenting to my idea of me taking up his mantle, uh, that maybe it'd be helpful to know how God is, has worked the word in my life. Or would you be all right with that? I, I think the word of God really is, is the standard here. And whether I happen to be Dr. Holmes, which I'm not, or someone who also loves the word of God because God has worked in my life, um, I want to just share testimony of how God has changed my character through, its script, through God's word. As we were walking from Pastor Holmes' car up to the seminar room today, here in the boys' dorm of Great Lakes Adventist Academy, I share with him a little story of something that reminded me of my first mentor when I was attending Andrews University. And Pastor Terry Nelson, how many of you have ever met him? Uh, Pastor Terry Nelson passed away uh, back in 2021, um, but he for many years served very passionately in our conference here in Michigan. And he had related an experience in his own testimony in which he'd worked with an evangelist, Dan Collins. How many of you know who Dan Collins is? Okay, so Dan Collins had mentored him and there was a point when Dan Collins was not able to complete a series of evangelistic meetings, and he called up 
his younger associate, Pastor Terry Nelson, or at the time maybe wasn't yet a pastor, and said, it's time for you to take up the mantle. And you need to continue these meetings. The word of God has to get out there and we're not going to stop the meetings because he couldn't be there. And so the mantle, so to speak, was passed on and Pastor Terry Nelson ran with it and the meetings were successful. And um, I did not foresee this happening. I don't think Pastor Holmes did either. But um, we just want to praise the Lord that God's word is going to go out. Um, and God's word will triumph and we will all meet safely in that final church of the last hour if we persevere to the end. Something that Dr. Holmes and I both have in common is that neither of us began our faith experience within the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Um, I was actually raised in a non-denominational Christian family, and I did not foresee God leading me in this direction, but God has plans for us. Can you praise the Lord? And God's word is not going to stop bearing fruit. And so... um, just so you understand a little bit more of how God has led and how his word has borne fruit in my life, I believe that we are in the last hour. Can you say amen? amen? And God is going to finish this work if we will submit to it. So uh, just for helpful context, given the timing, and so that you better understand whether he's able to continue tomorrow or if it happens to be uh, the Lord uh, indeed has laid the mantle on me to continue his seminar, I praise the Lord that you're still here and, and that we're a part of this journey together. So. Absolutely. I love Jesus. I love the Bible. I love the spirit of prophecy. And uh, I love that Jesus is going to prepare us for heaven. Can you say amen? amen. So I'm excited. And, uh, and I, I praise the Lord for this, um, this joy of service. So I grew up actually in Modesto, California. And I was born in 1987. So that dates me 35 years. And uh, my parents actually met at Andrews University. My mother attended school here when it was called Cedar Lake Academy. Uh, Elaine Wilkie at the time, but she married John Brizendine, my father, and um, they lived, from what I could understand, it seemed like a fairly happy Seventh-day Adventist life for the years that they were married in their first few years. They ended up having my older sister, Julie, in 1982, and tragically, she died when she was two. Uh, the pain of that loss, which I don't fully understand because I wasn't there, as well as some of the theological winds that were blowing in the Seventh-day Adventist church around that time, 70s and 80s, given the Ford crisis um, and misunderstandings about the biblical sanctuary, uh, led my, my mom to join another church in 1985. So I was not born yet, and I had no knowledge of what was going on or control of it. So growing up, I believed that the Sabbath was biblical because my mom taught me about the seven-day Sabbath. I just knew that we went to church every Sunday and that we would clean the house on Friday and we'd get ready for Sabbath. And then we'd go to the farmer's market on Sabbath morning. So I did not get a complete picture of truth. And I also believe that like Dr. Holmes, who was uh, someone who was very sincere in his faith, uh, he, of course, served as a Lutheran minister for a number of years before becoming a Seventh-day Adventist, um, was sincere, but not a complete picture of truth that he was working with. And I can resonate with that. I didn't have a complete picture of truth, but God would meet me where I was at. Unfortunately, my father... Um, ended up becoming ill and had a rare brain illness that led to pneumonia and he died when I was only 12. So I lost my dad pretty young. And then my mom, the same year that my dad um, passed away, it was the year 2000, she found out she had cancer. And then she battled that for a couple years and then passed away in 2002. So it's been 20 years since I've had either of my parents with me. But uh, thank the Lord that we have a Heavenly Father who takes us up 
And I'm really grateful for that. And Pastor Holmes has been like a spiritual father, mentor uh, to me over these seven years that I've been serving with him. And I am just so grateful for him. And I, I pray the Lord continue to sustain him um, as he's been a real gift from God. So I was not a Seventh-day Adventist when those things were happening. Um, I was, would have considered myself non-denominational. Um, it was part of the mega church movement that still is fairly large in the United States where large churches will gather with uh, basically multiple service offerings, Saturday night, Sunday morning, all that kind of stuff, whatever's convenient for people, um, and preach from the Bible, but not necessarily fully clear on scriptural teachings like Sabbath and other things. Uh, so growing up, um, I sincerely love the Bible. Can you say amen? Bible is, is the word of God. I believe that from my early years, but I didn't have a complete picture. And so God has a way of leading us step by step. So my parents were not part of my life from the age of 15 onward. I live with guardians, uh, Bruce and Kathy, who were friends from our non-denominational church in Modesto. And they were such a blessing to me and my sister. Um, but I just did not do well with all that change. I mean, losing both parents and then basically being parented by a new family dynamic. And then we moved and there was just, and then I started not being homeschooled. I went to the high school with that church. It was so much change that I just, I kind of broke down. And um, I was sent to a program for troubled youth in Utah, uh, which, you know, is a, basically a high school and, and therapy um, place where you're supposed to work through your life issues. And um, praise the Lord, I had a Bible with me. And I remember being there at that, that school in Utah. It wasn't Adventist. It was just kind of, um, actually, most of the staff were Mormons. Um, so um, I had a Bible with me, and I still remember praying or believing like to the extent of saying, Lord, I believe that the answers to my life are in this book. How do I get them from here to here? Like, how do I move the word of God from this little book into my mind and my heart? Because I was mentally and emotionally and spiritually struggling after all what I'd been through. And, you know, God knows, you know, what we go through and he's very gracious and good to heal us. So uh, when I was there, I, if you would have asked me, I probably would have said that I believed in the Sabbath, but it was hard to keep it there. And um, in the years that followed, my uncle on my father's side, so uh, some of you may have heard of him, Farrell Brizendine, he used to teach at Andrews and he was a dean at Pacifican College. He talked to me and to Bruce and Kathy and said, maybe Sean should go to Pacifican College. And so I was open to that. But I remember saying to him, I'm not going to become an Adventist. And he's thinking, well, we'll just keep praying about that. So God has a way of turning us around if we uh, just wait patiently on him. So I went to school there in 2005, uh, completed um, some college courses, and I did not end up graduating there, um, but I did go pretty far in my studies. And so I still remember the way that I became a Seventh-day Adventist was there was an announced email sent out on campus. Of course, by this time, I've been around a lot of Adventists. I've been going to church on Sabbath at the campus church, and they wanted you to find the top 20 reasons to be a student missionary. So I went around the campus and I found those 20 reasons and then they would give you $20 if you did that. Um, it's kind of a random way to, to be in, interested in missions, but I was. And thankfully, um, not only was I able to get all the information on that, but I asked the chaplain, what do I need to do to you know, be a student missionary? They said, well, fill out this form. You need to be a Seventh-day Adventist, you need to do this. I said, well, I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist, but I could change that. So I talked with a pastor, 
And we arranged that I think that Sabbath or the Sabbath after, it was March 3rd, 2007, that um, I became a, a Seventh-day Adventist by profession of faith. I had earlier accepted Christ when I was five, prayed very sincerely with my mom. In fact, I would be up at night looking out my window thinking Jesus could come. Like, that's how, how earnestly I believed that he was coming soon. Um, of course, we know eschatologically there's more things that are going to happen before Christ's immediate return. Um, but he's preparing us for that. And then I was 10 when I was baptized. So the pastor, knowing that background, said, okay, well, you can become a Seventh-day Adventist by profession of faith if you believe what the Bible teaches in these things. And so, praise the Lord, that's what happened. Within a few months, I was not content with being a business major. Um, I can relate to Pastor Holmes, who at one point wanted to go into um, art. Not that I wanted to be an artist, but like, you know, I, I do like music and composing and, and, and art is interesting. But, um, you know, God can give us desires that he doesn't necessarily make our life calling. And so Pastor Holmes also had to go through that place of what was God wanting him to do as God made it clear to him that he was called to the ministry. And so I remember I was... Uh, just getting more and more into the Word of God. I would read it, I would share it, I would put it up around the campus, and uh, one of my friends from my parents' uh, like background, they had known my parents from years past, had sent me an email in October of 2007 and asked me a very honest question. They said, have you considered going into the ministry? And I'm thinking, that question is being asked at a time when I'm really not enjoying being a business major anymore. Like the idea of just getting people to buy stuff that they maybe don't really need. It just didn't seem meaningful. And I would be literally in my advertising class with my Bible under my lap reading Romans while I should be learning how to advertise to get people to buy whatever management stuff. And I mean, not that I wasn't, I got an A in that class, but I was more interested in Romans. So it just shows how God can change the direction of our, our path and our, our life call, calling. And so it was right after that email, I had reflected on it. I said, you know, reflecting on how God had been changing my life and my interest for him and his word, I said, it's a, it's a sign. And I, I went in a quiet place. It happened to be a shower in the dormitory at Pacific Union College. And very distinctly, not audibly, but no one was around at the time, was this clear call, I'm calling you to be a pastor. And I said, who are you? Like, what voice is this? And it was very clear, I am that I am. And that's right from Exodus 3.14 at the burning bush with Moses, and Moses took his shoes off at the burning bush. I took my shoes off, I surrendered to the call, and if God is calling, he'll make the way, and he'll do it in his perfect timing as well. And so I changed my major from business to theology the next day and began studying theology on the next quarter or semester it was. And I did not complete my studies there. Uh, I got more and more convicted on things that I was learning about the Bible and the spirit of prophecy I went canvassing for a summer in 2008. Uh, I went canvassing for a summer in 2011. And after a series of unique experiences and ministry involvement with a nonprofit that I was involved in helping to found with a few other Seventh-day Adventists, just didn't sense that nonprofit work was really where God wanted me. And so a friend of mine, also a pastor, said, I think we should go back to Andrews and complete our studies. Um, he would have gone to the seminary and I would have gone to finish my undergrad. And I applied and we both got accepted. I went to Andrews, and he ended up getting a call in Northern California. His name is Pastor Warren Muir. He now pastors in New York. And God can just arrange the timing perfectly. By the time I finished undergrad at Andrews, 2011 to 2013, he ended up being sent by his conference to seminary, and we ended up taking classes together. Isn't God's timing amazing? So God was perfect in that. And then the other thing that amazed me was as I was finishing my studies at Andrews in the seminary, 
I began, for one thing, to be mentored by Pastor Terry Nelson. Praise the Lord for that godly man. I really appreciated um, his, his um, love for souls and his love for me and for the people that he mentored. He just poured his life into them. And uh, that's one thing. If you had to ask me, what's my favorite thing about seminary? I said being mentored by Pastor Terry Nelson. Because uh, it's just so, so practical of what life and ministry is like. And so in the uh, months that followed, he was praying, I was praying. And I remember I had a prayer journal. I specifically prayed this. If it be thy will to open up a call in northern Michigan, so be it. In Jesus' name, amen. Prayed that on January 27, uh, 2015. I prayed it like every day. And then I remember Elder Gallimore and now our conference president, but at the time he was the executive secretary, Elder Mitchiff were on the phone um, as they invited me to start pastoral ministry in northern Michigan and with Dr. Holmes. And I remember I asked them, where is Greenland and Bessemer? I'd never heard the town names before. And I'd never even been to that part of the Western Upper Peninsula. And they said, it's in Northern Michigan. And I remember hearing them say that, and it was not like, a, give me a week to pray about this, or I need like a month to really think about. Like I've been praying for two months for this specific very thing, and, and God has opened this door. And um, I said, yes, because that was God's answer to prayer. And so then I began ministry on June 1, 2015 with Dr. Holmes. So it's just been over seven years. But what I find amazing is God's timing. The call on my life to be a pastor was on October 25, 2007. And I began pastoral ministry June 1, 2015. That's exactly seven years, seven months, and seven days later. I didn't even know that until like two years ago when I looked over the, the time sequence. But I share that testimony so you better understand that I'm just as passionate as Pastor Holmes about the Word of God, and we all have a unique experience, but the one thing that unifies us is His Word. Can you praise the Lord? Amen. Amen. So in conclusion, the church that faced with meeting the demands the last hour mission needs people who love the Lord and His truth supremely. I choose to be one of those people. How about you? Amen. God calls us to be faithful to the end. We are called to love the, the world here in this last hour, on the threshold of the Lord's return and have the courage to tell the truth about the truth. We are to love to tell that truth in the spirit of Christ. And I close with a quote from Martin Luther. If I profess with the loudest voice in clearest exposition every position of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at, la are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved, and to be steady on the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. Can you say amen? amen? So we're called to stand faithful and not relinquish any of the truths of Scripture. All of the Scriptures are inspired, every word of it. We need to stand by it to the last hour. And how many of you want to be faithful through Jesus' power in this church the last hour by raise of hands? Amen. Let's pray together, and if you'd like to kneel with me and ask the Lord to seal these decisions of surrender and consecration. Loving Father in heaven, you have brought us together because we are part of the church of the last hour. Lord, you have used Dr. Holmes in a mighty way for decades, and we praise you for how you've so lovingly used him. Lord, he's not feeling well. Please heal him. We ask, Lord, that your word will continue to reach our hearts and strengthen us with the very places we need it most. Lord, we're in a time of great apostasy, a time of great confusion in our world, and we know that, you're, that the devil is attacking your church. But Lord, the church of the last hour will be faithful 
if she keeps her eyes on Jesus and as we stand on the word that cannot change. So I ask for an extra measure of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the early and latter rain upon each one that's here now and who will hear this message later, that Lord, we be faithful to the end, not flinching from any point of truth, but living that truth and sharing that truth the way Jesus did and the way that John the Beloved did as well. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 22 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.